Well, hello. Good morning. Vietnam. <laughs> My neighbors hate me. <laughs> How are you? Good morning. Good morning to you. I am doing delightful. I've had lots of sleep this weekend, so that's one thing, and Love that's that. rare. Yeah, the mold is gone. You're back in the house. Oh my gosh, the mold is gone, y'all. The mold is gone. <laughs> the wicked witch is dead. <laughs> and lots of other things have been fixed, so that's super exciting. <laughs> nice, nice. So yeah, back in my old stomping grounds. How about you? What have you been up to? I had an amazing, amazing concert last week. I sang for Broadway at the Bourbon Room. And it was a Disney night and I sang, wait for it, let it go. And it was for, actually they had a Dick Van Dyke was watching. They had, you know, a lot of people from the Geffen Playhouse were there, which is a big, you know, playhouse here where all the celebrities do all their shows, which was very cool to get in front of all them. It was sold out, standing room only. The video, it's going to be on YouTube actually right now, but it's on my Facebook page. It's on my Instagram but it turned out really well. I was very proud of the performance, but it was just such a fun night. A lot of great artists were there, musical theater people in LA. And what was so cool was that a lot of the people that came to see the show, they just are like, I love Broadway. And so they just came <laughs> to see the show. And yeah. so they're not in the business and they loved it. And so, you know, shout out to Broadway at the Bourbon Room and Marissa, who, who runs it for, you know, putting together such a great venue for artists because it, it really kind of brought what's her name? Haley from the Goldbergs was there. Oh, the show the Goldbergs. She yeah. sang. It was a great, a lot of some people from Hamilton. It was just a great, it was a great, great night. And I hope you guys can check out the performance. Oh, yeah. You killed it. So I'm just, you. you know, I'm just going to put the video. I think I shared it on our story, but I'm going to reshare it at some okay, point. Cool. So cool, 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 cool. Yeah, I definitely tried to sing for Jesus. Yes. Well, you did <laughs> a fabulous job and Yay, you totally you. let it go vocally and spiritually and everything. Oh, yes. It was it wonderful. Was, it was a very cathartic song to say the least for what's going on right now in my personal life. But yeah, um, yeah no, I got to let it go, move on. It's, you know, what is it? I'm never going back. The past is in the past. Let it go. Those are the lyrics. Yes. And personally, one of my favorite songs, movies, second movie. Oh, Frozen. All yeah. of it. And you have kids, so I'm sure that they love it too. Yes, they're important Elsa. as well. But no, <laughs> but <you. laughs> I will never be against watching any Frozen whenever they want it. I actually had to the other day, I was like, we haven't seen Frozen 2 in a while. Maybe it's time. And it's, I was like, mm, new minions, please. <laughs> well, what about you? What have you been up to? Well, you know, moving back into my house, that's been great. But also, you know, as of... We're recording this kind of right as we ended season one. And so was doing a lot of social media and stuff for our last guest of season one, which was Willem Belli, who I thought we had a fantastic conversation with. It was incredible. However, for some of these, I run some small ads that, you know, they get kind of to a wider audience. So people that aren't already following us. But there are parameters of usually they're educated, you know, a little bit more progressive, you know, listen to comparable podcasts, that kind of thing. And I'm not going to lie, I was absolutely horrified by the amount of comments that were underneath this that I just, I told you this before, that I've been trying all week not to make some grand post on my Facebook page, not to, because I don't want to give those people the satisfaction, but I feel like something has to be said because it really just 
got to me how many people wrote on there like barf faces, you know, this is Satan's work, you're grooming children, all kinds of things. I mean, we ended up having 74 comments. I had to hide 72. I'm sure the people I hid aren't listening to this right now, so I don't care. But in a way, it just like, it made me a little bit less optimistic about the direction that we're going in this country. And I understand if you don't like that stuff, like if you're not into it, if you don't aren't into a gay man who likes to dress up and make people happy. Okay. But you don't need to say anything. You know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So it got to me and it just made me think that we have a lot more work to do. Well, we definitely do. And, you know, you just told me about this this morning and I really, I'm so saddened by what you just said, because it is, I thought, God, you think we're past some of this shit, you know, sorry, Mama Jackie, but (laughs) I cussed. That's better than usual. Yeah, exactly. I just, I thought we were past some of this stuff because it's just, it's gotten to the point where it's like, oh my God, get another line. Yeah. Get another gig. You know, people are who they are and there are, you know, drag has been around since since the you know dawn of time in greek theater people you know men were dressing up as women in shakespearean times you know men literally played all of the parts and were dressing up as women and it was a celebrated thing so you know and i'm sorry sir if this is showing up on your algorithm (laughs) you might have been doing some google searches that would lead someone to believe that you like to see men dressed up as women so i'm gonna need you to have several seats Several seats. Thank you. Because (laughs) gross. You're gross. As much as you may have thought that was gross, you're gross. So take a look in the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting very comfortable with the buttons. Damn. You know who's really cool? Our guest today. Yes. Talk about a good human being. Yes. Who I am super excited that we got to talk to. But no, that's a great segue because, you know, there are trash people and then there are people like this person who I, is a dear friend of mine, went to college together, known him, you know, forever, and he has been through a lot. And one of those main things being that he is an alcoholic, but he calls himself recovered. So I'm going to go ahead and give a little background on our guest that we're having today, who is McCord Henry. McCord Henry is a recovered alcoholic, a hotel food and bev management director, the founder of Living Recovered and Script Wit, and an active runner. He is the youngest of four kids and grew up in a conservative family in Charlotte, North Carolina, but eventually made his way to Charleston, where he attended College of Charleston. After college, McCord moved to L.A. to fulfill his dreams of being a casting agent. However, his addiction to alcohol began wreaking havoc on his work and personal life, and he attempted his first stint with sobriety in 2015 after an intervention, a rehab stay, and living in a sober living house. However, only a year later, he found himself at the bottom of a bottle again. In 2017, he finally took matters into his own hands and checked himself into an ER, after which he never touched alcohol again. He continues to work in hospitality as the food and beverage director of the Pendry Hotel, but is equally as passionate about helping others with addiction. He has successfully run two marathons in Baltimore and New York to raise money and awareness for addiction and is preparing to run in the Chicago Marathon this year to benefit the Hay Market Center and family and other families like his own who aided in his recovery. So without further ado, McCord Henry. Well, good morning, McCord. Good morning. 
How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are y'all? Welcome to the program. Always just excited to be on here. Yeah, Todd's got his coffee. I've got my weird ginseng mix that I think helps, but I'm not sure if it does. Coffee as well over here. Yes. We all have our caffeine moment. McCord, welcome to the program. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you eventually made your way to Charleston and where you and Laura met? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, born and raised for 18 years, youngest of four children. My father was a pastor of a large mega church in the South, Presbyterian, so 3,000 plus members. Christianity was a big part of my growing up upbringing. I was born and raised in the church, like I said, and moved to Charleston, South Carolina for college. My older brother went there and just we always went to Charleston on vacations during the summer because we had family friends there. So, yeah, I went there in 2006 and I stayed in Charleston four years after graduation until 2014. I met Laura. Gosh, I think it was my freshman year. Actually, I remember this It was my freshman year at the beach house yes at seabrook yes. yes i ended up like oh well we don't have to go into all the details but i ended up like staying <laughs> you don't have to go to every detail but i do remember it ending with some kind of a slushy being spilt somewhere it was a milkshake in the back of your car oh my gosh i forgot about this so and then since then we just like connected and always you know remained in touch and hung out through college and mountain weekends and and yeah so that's kind of what i guess brought me to next page yeah, that's how you got here. 14 years later, if you will. But yeah. Yeah, let's not again date ourselves here, but sure. And you were a PK. That's crazy. I am. Yes, still am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your other two siblings that didn't come down because you're referring to Thomas that came down. Yes. And the other two stayed up there. Ashley went to Charleston as well, my older sister, but oh, she right. we didn't okay. connect or we were not in the same there together. She graduated the same year I graduated high school and then left. And then Trevor, my brother, went to Chapel Hill. Nice. All right. Well, as you know, this podcast is focused on trauma and trauma recovery. So we're just going to kind of hop right into it. So for all of our listeners, you are what you call a recovered alcoholic and are about to run your third marathon to raise awareness about addiction. So can you walk us through kind of how you came to be considered an alcoholic, if you will, and how you got sober the first time and generally how that situation was handled? So... Alcohol did not really enter my life until probably like my senior year of high school. I was kind of late to the party, if you will. And then throughout college, I drank, but it wasn't ever a problem. Like I definitely was a lush, but, you know, I was focused on academics. But, you know, it was never an issue for me really until after I graduated school. So once I graduated college, I did well in college. I was president of my senior class, did well in school, and then left Charleston briefly and then met a boy and came back. And I was working as an inside sales analyst for a shipping company and just not really happy in kind of any aspect of my life. And so alcohol really came into my life on like a daily basis. And I slowly started drinking every night and quickly it it manifested in different ways. And all of a sudden it was a Tuesday and I'm, you know, downing four bottles of wine with my you know partner at the time. And that's just normal. Wasn't happy with my job and my career and myself and alcohol was kind of a, a crutch and a means I used it to escape instead of enhance my situations. So it was, like I said, yeah, a way of escaping and, and it just kind of, it slowly 
the thing about this disease, it kind of like, it slowly just like creeps up on you. So like at one point you're, you know, drinking normally with friends. And then next thing you know, it's like you're on a lunch break and you're not happy at work and you're taking a shot of vodka just to get through the day. And you're like normalizing that. And the in-between, I don't really know how it happened, but it just is there. Fast forward to after about three years of working at this company and in this relationship, I just realized I wasn't happy and I wanted to change. So I thought, you know, moving and changing the scenery would help. So I moved to Los Angeles, lived in West Hollywood and became a bartender and worked in casting. And little tidbit of information, if you have a slight drinking problem in Charleston, South Carolina, don't move to L.A. and become a bartender because it turns into a full-fledged well, well, <laughs> well, that's exactly preach. where Todd is, is in West Hollywood. So he probably there, knows yeah. the bar you, you so were bartending you know, at. I worked at a bar called Duplex on 3rd and then worked at a casting place as an intern. And then I frequented the Abbey and other bars and often got kicked out. So my slight addiction turned into a full-fledged. I really didn't have much accountability, so I was just literally drinking all day, every day. My family came out a few times. They were very concerned. And I ended up going to a wedding in Atlanta, Georgia for a family wedding and suffered from withdrawals like the first night. And I just told everyone I was sick. And then they quickly realized what was going on. The wedding ended with a full intervention with my my one friend who lives in Atlanta, Elizabeth, and then the rest of my family, which led to rehab facility in Maryland and then followed by a sober living house in Dallas for nine months. So that was my first time getting sober. I worked I worked all the 12 steps. But the problem with my first time being sober was I, I didn't get sober for myself. I got sober for other people, for my family. And I really didn't think I was an addict. My whole byline and my whole like mantra throughout the entire time was, you know, you can be addicted to a substance without being an addict. So I would just tell everyone, you know, oh, I was depressed and, you know, people are, you know, addicted to smoking cigarettes, but they're not necessarily an addict. So that was just kind of like where I was. The sober living house was very Christian based and the program kind of ended up focusing more on my sexuality versus my addiction. So it was a very frustrating experience because I, you know, I told them when I was going there, you know, I am gay and this is not something I want to work on, you know, and they, they were accepting and absolutely we've had gay people here before but quickly throughout the first couple months I realized that was not the case and slowly they kind of like broke you down in a sort of almost like military style like they had us kind of pitted against each other all the people that were in I would say patience, I guess, sir. Explain that to me a little bit but like I kind of want to hear more like of an exam like examples of that. Every morning we would wake up in, in me and then like we would have nightly meetings where we would call each other out on our, we called it like relapse behavior. If you were not being forthcoming or withholding information, or if you kind of did anything that wasn't like pure and honest, it was just all of us against each other. And it was supposed to be for our benefit, but honestly it was like we were tearing each other apart and like looking for ways for each of us to be better. And throughout the experience, you know, you get broken down and exhausted and and then you kind of, I think the, the point is to be rebuilt. But for me specifically, my focus in my area was my sexuality, which was very frustrating. So I was there for nine months. At one point I went to, they, they took me to a church where we heard from a, a reformed homosexual who was gay, but is now straight and living the, the truth and honest life. And I, you know, burst into tears in the middle of this church because I'm thrown back to, you know, my Christian upbringing and, and just got very frustrated and, Ended up going through the entire program for nine months, and we had a graduation ceremony, and I'm using quotes because 
I don't even know what I was graduating from, but in this ceremony, I'm literally looking in front of 12, you know, cis, straight white men, and they're all telling, my alcoholism was not mentioned once. It was all about my addiction. So I graduated from this place after nine months, had, you know, nine months sober there and ended up getting a job opportunity in Seattle, which I jumped at and I kind of took it a chance to restart and refresh and didn't tell anybody about my experiences there. And I just like kind of started anew in Seattle. So that was my, my first time getting sober. And when I was in Seattle, not surprisingly, I you know started drinking about a month after. Can you give us a little bit of background about the second time you decided to get sober? So was it when you were in Seattle and you've, you've ultimately been sober for like five yeah, years five now? Yeah, five plus years. So I started drinking quickly in Seattle and about a month after I got there. And after, I would say I was a successful or functioning alcoholic, I guess, for my first year. I was getting promoted, doing well with work. I ended up getting a transfer to Santa Barbara. During that time, I got a DUI. You would think that would be a wake-up call to stop drinking, but it turns out it was not. I literally got out of prison and started drinking like that morning. And slowly and surely, this, you know, alcoholism came back in full force. And it went from, you know, just drinking at night after work to to drinking constantly. And so I got I got transferred from Seattle to Santa Barbara with this company, which was also my first company to work in hospitality, which is my current career. So I was in Seattle, moved to Santa Barbara, and in Seattle, I had like a good friend base, and my boss was there, and I had like a great roommate, so I had some sense of accountability, but when I moved to Santa Barbara, I had none. So my, you know, again... Nobody me, I, there. Yeah, no close friends. Second time in California. Me and California do not mix, obviously. <laughs> I Aww, <laughs> quickly started drinking... Not just at night, but during the day, I started drinking before work and I just, it started drinking constantly. My body became fully addicted to alcohol. I would wake up in the morning, have wine to settle my stomach. You mentioned to me that you would drink like a bottle of wine or half a bottle of wine and then throw up to settle your stomach, then drink the other half with whatever breakfast. So that was just, you know, your average Monday. So I, it got so, and I'm like laughing about it now just because it's, it was very dark. How did you do that and work? Were you re- working remotely? I was the assistant general manager of a restaurant and it, it not successfully. So after a couple months, it obviously started impacting my work. It wasn't like that at the beginning. It just kind of, again, creeped up. But in three months, it was that's not that much time for you to kind of digress. So right. I... I got written up. I was probably about to be terminated. There was definitely several shifts where I was just completely incapacitated. I, I'm not really sure how I got through them. It finally got to the point where I, like during at 11, like at a morning shift, I fell asleep in the office and they had me on security footage, passed out on the floor with my associates apparently trying to get in. So definitely not like my proudest moment. So I got called into, after that happened, I got called in to work with my GM, who actually at that time was about 17 years sober. So he knew what was going on. I think that's also why I kind of got a little bit maybe away with it just longer because he had a soft spot for me and was trying to help instead of just like put me on blast. I remember also at one point the HR, senior HR person like pulled me aside and was like, just, you know, you smell like alcohol. I'm not sure if this is last night. And I just remember being like mortified because I was drunk at the time. So they, they wrote me up for performance, obviously. And the next shift I was supposed to come in that night, I called in and quit and did not obviously show up to work. So after that week, that night, I went on about a week long bender. I don't remember much from that week. I was literally waking up, throwing up, struggling to, gosh, I just remember like the liquor store was a block and a half away from my apartment. And like this morning I ran 15 miles. And at that time, 
that block and a half was more daunting, you know, just to like get to the liquor store just so I could function and come back was just like such a, a mind hurdle to get over. And I would do it and then come back and just drink myself into a stupor again and then repeat for a week. I had the delirium tremors at that time, which is when you hallucinate because your body is so addicted to alcohol, it's when, when you withdraw at night, you start hallucinating and seeing things. And then, like I said, it was a very, very dark time. And then April 3rd, 2017, I woke up and I was just done. I knew it. Like at this point in my life, it was either I had, you know, two options and it was either get sober or continue what I was doing and, and die because it was just not going to, there was no other option. So I called my brother, Thomas, and just was like, I don't know what to do. And he was like, hang up and go to the hospital. So I ordered an Uber, which I still remember, like, I was smoking a cigarette and just like couldn't like dial the thing and finally got to the ER and walked in and just was just told ask them like to help. I was like, help me, I'm withdrawing from alcohol. And they ended up having an amazing rehabilitation center in the hospital that I was at in Santa Barbara, which probably makes sense. And so went up there, spent five days in the rehab, uh, rehab center and yeah, walked out and haven't touched it since. Well, I can imagine too, like just how hard it was to make that phone call at all. But mm. was it like slightly a relief to get into the hospital and like them actually, I mean, cause alcohol is literally one of the few drugs that can cause death from withdrawal. So, yeah. you know, I mean, how did they kind of respond to that? They instructed me to stay. I mean, they would, they obviously were not, you know, I, they couldn't force me to, but as, as soon as I like, for the last, the last three months of my drinking, I, I, I knew the end was nigh, if you will. Like, I knew it was coming to an end. And I, because of that, I think I drank more just because I was trying to, you know, get as much in as possible. And, but as soon as I made the call to Thomas and as soon as I was on the way to the hospital and as soon as I walked in, I knew there was, I was crossing a, thresh, a threshold that I could not come back from, you know, and it was admitting like step one of Alcoholics Anonymous, admitting that you're powerless. And that's where I was, you know, I... And as soon as I kind of said that, and I just, I felt relief, like, honestly, like very similar to how it was when I came out of the closet. Like, it was just like, like, this is okay. This is where we are. This is my new, this is my new normal now. And getting to that point was the struggle. But once I was there, it just, there was a sense of free, a freeness and an openness. You said in the beginning that when you were first in Charleston, I believe you were with a partner four years or something, and you would both drink together, you would drink four bottles of wine together. Do you think that that kickstarted the behavior? Because, you know, a lot of people say that alcoholism, you know, it's a gene, it's genetic, it's something you you have in your body, and it gets ignited when you drink your first of alcohol. When it comes to my relationship with alcohol, I don't want to blame like anybody but myself for this. I would say the environment I was in was not helpful. I don't think I was healthy. I don't know if it was the healthiest relationship, but it certainly was conductive of, and then, like you said, kickstarting this force that was inside of me that, you know, I couldn't really control at that point. And the escapism, you were escaping from what? Just my unhappiness. You know, like I, um, it's funny, after I got sober, I did a, uh, a personality assessment test. And in it, they, you know, talked about what I would do well in as a career. And they said, if you are, that I have a very like high talent for, you know, visual memory and I need to be on my feet. And, and then they said, if, if you are in a cubicle doing monotonous work, there are many negative side effects, one of them leading to addiction. And I was like, wow, this would have been helpful to take before I had started my career. So I think it was my job. It was my relationship. It was 
being in Charleston where alcohol is, you know, part of all social activities. But at the end of the day, it was, it was me that was the one that was encouraging this, seeking it, and ultimately drinking it. And, you know, I, I can't really blame anybody but myself for doing it. I will say I know my previous, my ex is, you know, he still drinks successfully. I obviously, we kind of, once we broke up, I continued down a darker path and he continued his life and, and is fine. So, And I think you've said it's kind of important to you in general that people realize like not only how bad it really got, but also that it can look different for every person. So could you kind of elaborate on why it's important for you to know kind of how bad it got, but also, you know, how does it look different for everybody else? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, alcoholism is an addiction is different for every person. For me, it was something that once I started, it was a constant in my life. You know, it got to a point where I had to physically need it in order to make my hand stop shaking. There are people I've talked to that don't drink for months and then they come to alcohol and they drink and they can't stop, but it's only for like one night or for one weekend. And then they're sober again for, for months. So there are, you know, hundreds of different ways to be an alcoholic. And the way I look at living recovered, this, you know, campaign that I've, I've started is there are, there should be, and there are, in my opinion, hundred different ways to get sober as well. Not just one. Gotcha. And can you explain to us what exactly living recovered is? Like, how is it different from AA and how it might help other people out there dealing with alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. So first off, I think AA is a great program when I'm very vocal about my sobriety, which is probably where I kind of differ from AA in the first place. There's no anonymity in my life. I'm just very open and honest about it, and I want to talk about it. I do think that AA has is a great program and a great structure. So because I'm so vocal on social media about it, I will have people that are struggling with alcoholism. They'll reach out and kind of ask me how to get sober. And my response to them is always, you know, go to a meeting and just listen to other people that are like-minded because the structure of AA is so important, especially in those first few months when you are trying to put one foot in front of the other and rebuild a life that you've broken down. After the second time I got sober, which the second time I got sober, I got sober for myself. You know, at this point, there was no question of whether or not I was an addict. I wasn't hiding behind some excuse that, you know, I was addicted to only a substance, but I wasn't an addict. I was like, all right, I'm the real deal. I did rehab. Now I'm in the hospital. What is my life going to look like? I went to AA meetings for my first couple months of being sober, and I just slowly found myself not identifying with the constant living and recovery method. And I remember after about... About, about a year of being sober, I decided to publicly come out, if you will, as an alcoholic and tell everyone, you know, this is what my life was. This is what, and this is who I am now. And I'm, I'm going to own this. I'm going to own my truth and I'm going to speak about it and I'm going to talk about it. And I remember I was having dinner with a good friend in DC and we were talking about AA and the idea of living in recovery. And I I found myself getting frustrated in, in meetings because I didn't identify with it and it wasn't, it wasn't something that I woke up every morning and I'm so grateful for this, that this is my truth, that I, it wasn't a constant decision I had to make anymore. And I did not like the idea of living in recovery because it felt exhausting. Like I'm, I'm living in recovery forever. Like that's my, this is my, this is my only option. Like I, I just didn't identify with it. So I was, and I was talking to her and I was like, I'm not living in recovery. I'm recovered and I'm living. And we both just kind of like, we're like, Ooh, like that was, that was a moment right there. And from that living recovered was born. And I had already kind of been toying with the idea of running a marathon at that point. And that kind of furthered 
this idea of like living recovered and and showing a different option to to sobriety. Because like as I said earlier, you know, there are a hundred different ways to be a drunk or be a drug addict. There should be a hundred different ways to be sober. There's not a monopoly on addiction. There's not a monopoly on sobriety. And I think the more we talk about it and the more we give solutions to this disease, the better chance everyone else has of getting sober and embracing a life that, you know, they didn't think possible. Well, now we are talking about it, right? Like our parents' generation really didn't, you know, though that's just the way he is or whatever. And now we're actually talking about, you know, the systematic or what is it called when generational trauma that's just passed down from generation to generation. But now you're actually talking about it and living recovered. I mean, Laura, I don't know if you can speak to this, but it sounds it's like, okay, you're taking ownership for yourself. I am recovered and now I'm going to go out and I'm going to continue to be recovered and I'm going to help people get there as well. You know, I think it's all about knowing who you are and knowing yourself. And for me, I've heard for a very long time. And I'm sure that Todd, you can relate to this. Like there are with being like a homosexual, there's a lot of shame about around that when they're growing up. And then I piled on being an addict on top of that. And I was like, okay, now I'm a addict and a homosexual. And I just had all the shame around it. And I was like, you know what? Like this is other people telling me that this, I'm proud to be a gay. I'm proud of who I am. And it, you know what? I'm also proud I'm an addict. Like I am so grateful that this disease, if you want to call it a disease, is in my life. But at this point in my life, I look at it as no longer a disease, but a gift. You know, this is a condition, but it's also a gift that defines my life. And if I'm using it for the wrong things, if I'm, if I'm using it for alcoholism, it can, you know, be my detriment. But if I'm using it for, I'm an addict, I'm addicted to growth. I'm addicted to running. I'm addicted to quotes. And if I can focus it and like channel it into something positive, it can, it's turning me into the man I'm becoming and the man I want to be. And I am embracing it and using it, you know, and I think that's something that we can all benefit from. And I get excited about it. That's why Laura wanted to, to start this podcast. It's why she contacted me because you are literally, you are the definition of overcoming trauma, the shame of being gay that eventually led to alcoholism, that eventually kept, we wanted to suppress yourself and hide from all this stuff. You know, this is why we do this podcast. Our whole point is to expose, you know, everybody is going through some level of something. And they may not be full-blown alcoholism. It may not be overcoming, you know, the shame of growing up Christian and and being a homosexual, but as a whole, like we're not doing anybody any we're doing everybody a disservice by not being vocal about it. And that's something that you mentioned Correct. that you could not really, you know, besides the living in recovery, like the AA the the anonymous part was something that you really weren't a fan of. And I think that that can apply to a lot of these things, like, you know, when you survive any kind of trauma, whether that's going through a divorce, whether that's having a bad childhood or whatever, it's, you know, and not everybody has to talk about it. But when everybody suppresses it and nobody talks about it, that's when where the problems start. I mean, the more darkness you put on something, the more power it gives it. You know, it's like if we're if I'm sitting there just not talking about being an addict and being ashamed of it, then I'm letting that control my life and let be a negative force for it. But if I talk about it and I expose it and I'm like, hey, this is my weak, this was my weakness. Now it's my strength. You know, like it's something that we can all benefit from. And it, it kind of removes the power and the sting from it just by like literally just talking about it. Yeah. So I guess kind of speaking of talking about it. So what has it been like for you dating, being a gay man? in New York City, but also sober. 
And how do you feel like it's kind of changed over the years for you with that whole experience? So we're going to need a separate podcast part two for that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So dating as a sober person has been interesting, to say the least. I will say my first year of sobriety before I, you know, publicly came out as a sober individual, I had a lot of shame around it. And that whole first year, too, I was just kind of relearning everything. You know, once you because I spent about seven years being a drunk and letting it define my life. So I had to relearn how to do everything, you know, build friendships and and obviously how to go on dates. So for the first year, I would, gosh, I put so much stress on myself. I would literally show up to the bar, you know, beforehand. I would always get there like at least 10 minutes before the date was to start so I could order, you know, my club soda with a lime just so we didn't have to have the conversation and the, you know, the person didn't have to hear my order. And I would just avoid the question. Moving after I, you know, started talking about it on social media, and I'm now under the assumption that people that are going on dates with me are aware that I'm sober. It's on my Hinge profile, and obviously it's all over my social media. So now it's just something I I talk about and embrace, and I think it's, you know, I enjoy talking about it because I think it shows my strength of character, and this is something that I've gone through, and this is something that I've conquered, and I've gotten stronger for at the end. So honestly, if there's any, if there's a person that, you know, is not excited about it or doesn't, you know, admire this. So that's not really someone that I'm going to end up with. So I will say that I did have one relationship since I got sober and, you know, I turned into, I had to relearn how to do a lot of things when I got sober. And one of them was, you know, date and and love. And I turned into, you know, a little 12 year old school girl and I just kind of squashed them. But that was a learning experience. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I mean, dating in New York is, challenging, but exciting. And I mean, it's nice to at least have options in this city. So we are still single and, but I'm currently trying to figure out my dating goals, if you will. I'm not actively searching for a relationship, but I'm open to it. And if, and when I do find the right person, I just want to make sure that I'm able to continue growing as an individual, but also, you know, with a partner. But for right now, we're not in a rush. When you go on your first date, do you, if they don't know, because you said you do, you assume because it's all over your profiles and everything, if they di- didn't happen to read that and they don't know, are you upfront on the first date? Very, because I mean, this actually happened two weeks ago with a guy, obviously. He ordered a gin and tonic and I ordered a club soda and he kind of like was like, oh, are we not drinking? And I just kind of was like, no, you know, I have five years sober and we kind of launched into that whole subject, I guess. One of the great things about being gay is... The icebreakers at the beginning is so great because we can like talk about how it's coming out for you. And then you just get to see who they really are as a person by talking about this, you know, shared experience that we've all been through. And then I get to add another layer on top of that being like, well, you know, I also have this This is something I've been through. So I'm I'm an open book when it comes to communication. And like like we said earlier, I think the more like shame and darkness we put around this, it's just going to, it more power it gives it. But if I'm open and honest about it and like, this is who I am and this is why I'm the way I am, it sets the tone for how, well, I'm still single. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's not working or not. But, but. No, no, you just got to <laughs> no, find the right. No, no, I no, will no. say though, that I think that is one of the benefits of the apps. Like, and from back when, I mean, there's, there's hard to find a lot of benefits yeah. to them. But I think, you know, even in Charleston, which you'd probably be surprised to know, McCord, is there have been more and more people, at least when I was on there, that were just flat out like, no, I don't drink. And that was something that I had to kind of be like, okay, well, is this something that, because you don't know if sometimes that's just a choice or that's a religious thing or or what it is. 
but that I was much more open to going on dates with people like that just to kind of feel that out a little bit too. And whether that mattered to me and, and within a relationship, because as, as you know, I own a bar. Yeah. It's a great bar, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. It's yeah. awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> little plug there. <laughs> I was there pre-opening. So, you know, I feel oh, like I'm one was. of the OGs. He has yeah. some of the, yeah, the OG merchandise. Mm-hmm. I told him I got to get him some new ones. But I think that that is a good <laughs> thing though, for it to be kind of out there and on the table before you even go on the Absolutely. date. And then that also gives somebody like me the opportunity to say like, okay, I know you don't drink. Well, you know, kind of how did that come about? Because I feel like there's a difference between somebody who's just like not interested, never really has been, and somebody who's maybe an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. because it could be triggering for them to like go to a bar all the time to like see me after they get off work or something like that. But it's at least it's out there. And like that, that is... It's not as hidden where you have to kind of figure out like, okay, what is this, you know, does this person, even like smoking cigarettes, like I love that it has that on there, like does or does not smoke. And, you know, I guess it takes a little bit of the air of the mystery out, but. It does. (laughs) But, you know, at this point in our generation, I think let's, we can just get rid of the mystery and just be upfront and honest from the get go. It saves time. I never thought about the anonymous part, like how that would be. Because people, you know, I guess back in the day, people didn't want to talk about it and they did want to hide the fact that they were alcoholics. And it is a very private, personal thing. So if you want to remain anonymous, I think that that's great. But if you're someone who is prone to shame, it might make you feel like, I have to be quiet about this. I have to remain anonymous. I have to be, no one can know about this, which then can be triggering in itself. Yeah. Just clicked for me. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's it's not. Because because when you're living in recovery, you know, you think because it's an ongoing disease, you think that's that because that's what they, you know, that's what they, I understand that they say is that it's an ongoing, it's always something you have to be in control over. But for you, you're like, I have conquered this thing. I don't want to. I do not wake up, up every morning thinking about alcohol and trying to not drink. And I know that there are people out there that it is a struggle every day and every minute to not drink and to, they are constantly battling with this disease and I, my heart breaks and I I send them nothing but love and support. But I'm, I'm also so grateful that that is not my truth at this moment. I'm obviously very cognizant of the fact that at any point that could change. But for me, that is not my constant truth. And that is not, I did not identify with that. So that's why I was like, I need something else. And so I started it. Yeah. And that kind of, I think, helps people realize that you are, if you go into this, if you admit that you're an alcoholic and that you need help, that that's not like a death sentence to say that you're going to spend the rest of your life waking up every day going, I can't have a drink. It's like you can get to a point where it's not even a thought. No, I mean, obviously there are times when I, you know, Whenever I have a good steak, I'm like, oh, I would love a nice glass of red right now. Or, you know, champagne toast at weddings. There are certain moments that, you know, arise that there is a longing, just, you know, FOMO, if you will. But it's never strong enough to pull me in. And I'm very grateful for that. You know, I, my job, I'm assistant director of food and beverage for a hotel here. So my job is booze, you know, and I, I order it. I curated my entire wine list at my property and I have not tried a single drop. So it is possible to be surrounded by it, but not be of it. Yeah. And that was something we talked about the other day, too, was kind of like as somebody who's in food and Bev, you know, a lot of people put emphasis on, okay, well, that's where a lot of alcoholism starts or it 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 can or it's impossible to keep a job in that situation. Whereas 
we know for a fact, one, you're, you're one living, you know, proof of that. And then, you know, there's like people in Charleston that have come out and been honest about that as well as being chefs that are able to be in this environment because it's just kind of like, I don't know if y'all remember those like cigarette commercials or like quitting cigarettes. And it was like, this is how you, you know, you got to relearn to have a glass or yeah. have a cup of coffee without putting on your cigarette. pants on. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> but it's like, you, you have to relearn all of that. So in yeah. a way you'd still have to be able to be in those situations. You know, some people can't, some people that just, you know, that is a no go for them. But I thought it was kind of important to give people out there that are in food and Bev, or that's something that they're very passionate about and love being a part of and saying that's not, Again, like a death sentence, like that you can work within that industry. Absolutely. When I first got sober, I, I've been in food and beverage since I was 15. I'm about to be 35 next month. So almost 20 years experience in this industry. And I love it. You know, I love making memories with families. I love taking care of guests and I love, you know, serving others. That's I'm good at it and I've gravitated towards it and it makes me happy. So when I got sober, I didn't want to give that up. And I had a lot of people in my family, outside of my family, like, are you sure you want to do that? Kind of advise me to go against that. And I gratefully ignored them against their better judgment and just, you know, trusted myself. And at the end of the day, if I wanted to drink, which sometimes I do, I would, I would drink, you know, and that doesn't matter if I'm in Charleston, New York, Baltimore, on a train, on a plane, anywhere, you're going to find booze if you want it. So you know, it's up to the person to make the decision whether they're going to or not. Certainly there are different, you know, environments that are more conducive than others. Food and beverage, probably more conducive. But at the end of the day, it's up to the person. And you, as I said earlier, you just have to know yourself. Like, is this something that I'm able to handle or am I not? If I was waking up every morning with this struggle to be around it, to force myself not to, probably not the best career for me. But as someone that has been able to look at this and confine it to one area of my life and move forward and be stronger for it. I'm okay with working in food and beverage and I'm, I'm doing pretty good at it. So I'm going to keep on going. And you've said you have this natural quote unquote intensity in life and that when you focus on something that you're basically all in. So how did that sort of harm you as far as alcoholism goes and how does it help you now that you're sober? Oh, great question, Todd. Thank you. So, Good job, so, Todd. Well, well done. So my first, like I said earlier, my first year of sobriety was, I always call it gray, just because I was relearning how to do everything. I think at one point I like signed up for a real estate class that I, you know, only half-assed it. I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss, but. Um, oh, you are allowed to cuss. Okay, cool. Like yeah, I half-assed it. And <laughs> I just like was kind of stretched thin, putting one foot in front of the other. I remember I worked out for like one, a week and a half and I just had no like drive. After about nine months, I went from kind of zero to 180 and I did a full, like I just threw myself into everything. And that at that point, I was also the first time I dated this poor fellow that That's I you know, squashed. squashed. That guy. Um, yeah, that squashed <laughs> that guy. So I, I <laughs> threw myself into every aspect of my life. I was... <laughs> I was so intense at work. I got promoted for the first time. I was serving for my first year. When I interviewed at Pendry is my company that I worked for, based on my resume, they mentioned a management position, but I was like, I'm just going to start serving. At that point, I had been sober two weeks, so I did not want to start a career. So I served, but after about nine months, I went up for promotion. I got it. So I threw myself into work 
into this relationship, into life. And I have a really good friend that Laura, you know, Caroline, who I would just literally call and shit dot my life on for like three months. And it really made our relationship suffer to the point where like at one point I, I thought she was ignoring my calls because she probably was. God but bless through you, that, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> through those three months, she actually sent me a book called On the Heart Talks by Cleo Wade. I started and, it, by the way. Really uh, it's, good. It's so good. So she sent it to me just because she was like, hey, this kind of, you know, gently nudging me in a right direction. And I started reading one page a day for about 100 days, and it completely transformed my life. You know, I, I went from being manic and obsessed and focused and so intense that everything was a 10 to pausing and breathing and learning to love myself so that I had the capacity to love others. And that's kind of where I started this. Now I meditate every morning before I start my day. I'm able to breathe and be calm and not as intense with everything. And that's also where I really started running, which also has transformed my life. And I've been able to do my best thinking when I run and, you know, I process all my inner demons that come out. And yeah, I mean, that's really what kind of changed my life for the better was able to meditate and pause and breathe and realize that not everything is a 10. And through that, I started reading and meditating and just being really self-reflective and not just letting, you know, my mind go to every single place and let that dictate my life. Yeah. So I guess speaking of your running and your passion for running, you are now running your third marathon to raise awareness for addiction. Can you give us a little background about kind of each of your experiences with that and what really drove you not only to run, but to do it in the name of addiction awareness? Yeah. So I smoked cigarettes for my entire first year of sobriety. April 3rd is my sobriety date. 2017 was booze and 2018 was cigarettes. And then the next day, April 4th, I started running. And I just started running just like a few miles here and there. And I remember at, I was in Florida with my family on vacation and I ran like seven and a half miles. And this was like in November. And I just remember having this idea, like I should run a marathon. Cause at that point that was the longest I'd ever run. And it, the idea like wouldn't go away. And then fast forward to about two months later, I'm having that dinner where I kind of founded the idea of living recovered with my friend and they all kind of, you know, came together and I decided to run the Baltimore Marathon as my first marathon, which was really important to me to it, for it to be in Baltimore, just because that is where I established my sobriety and who I was going to be moving forward in my life. So there's a nonprofit recovery center called Penn North Recovery in Baltimore that I partnered with, and we raised over $5,000 for them. And I ran my first Baltimore Marathon in 2019. It was not ideal because I ran like an idiot. I ran like super fast for the first 16 miles. And then the last 10, I like completely died and had to walk, but I was hooked. So next year I signed up for the New York marathon, which got canceled for COVID, but I partnered with the partnership to end addiction, which is a nonprofit organization that helps families of individuals that are suffering with addiction and kind of teaches them how to handle people like me and how to love them, you know, and support them from afar or sometimes close and gives them the tools necessary to adapt to these situations. So they got postponed till actually last year, 2021, which coincided with my move to New York and opening the hotel last year. So it was all kind of fortuitous, you know. So I ran that marathon and was successful, much smoother than the Baltimore Marathon. And it was the 50th New York Marathon as well. So over those two marathons, I've actually raised around $12,000 for both of the different nonprofits, which is exciting. And I'm very proud of it. Yay. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Then, thank you. It's something I'm really proud of, you know, and like looking back, it's like, 
That's cool. Thank you. And then I signed up for the Chicago lottery just at that. Like right after I finished New York, I was like, I'm just going to enter the lottery and see if I get in because I wasn't really feeling like doing another marathon like that quickly. Right away. But of, yeah. course, but of course, I got accepted to the lottery. So now and then based off of, you know, if I'm going to be running, I might as well, you know, use this as a platform and talk about it for others to see and kind of hopefully ins- benefit from. And whenever anybody donates to the campaign, I always write a thank you letter. And in each thank you letter, I always mention like, if even one life is changed for the better, then we have succeeded. And that is, you know, I truly believe that because if I was that person for a very long time and, you know, if I could reach out to that person that I was then and talk to them about it and show them that there is another way of living, then everything that I've been doing for the last years is worth it. So if even one person is changed, then yeah. So I'm excited, obviously, and it's obviously very personal to me. And right now we are at 2,800 of our $5,000 goal for the Haymarket Center, which is the nonprofit recovery center in Chicago, who have been so great and very excited. They set up my own page on their website for McCord Henry's Living Recovered Campaign. And I've actually now... I'm at work. I'm also the president of Hearts of Pendry, which is our community outreach committee. Each property has a community outreach committee called Hearts of Pendry, where, you know, the associates join together and give back to the community. And I kind of incorporated with this run, the Living Recovered Hearts of Pendry campaign. So now it's official Pendry campaign for the month of September, which is National Recovery Month. So we're not only partnering with my current property at Pendry, New York or Pendry Manhattan West, but we're also partnering with the Sagamore Pendry Baltimore, and then Pendry Chicago, we have a property as well. So all three of the properties are kind of getting behind me, which is really exciting. And we just announced it two days ago on September 9th, because we have one month until the marathon. Yeah, so you're running that October 9th. October 9th. Yep. And I'm officially tapering down at this point. So I did my really long run last week, and then I did my run this morning. And then now I've got like two more long runs. And then, yeah, so we're at this point, we're just kind of maintaining before the actual run. So if this was, we're still kind of in the works of when our season two will be premiering. So if the run has already happened at that point, can people still donate after the fact? Absolutely. You can donate to the Haymarket Center whenever. So the link will still be up on my bio. You can reach out to me on social media if you want. Um, and I will gladly send it. So the campaign officially will probably be over. It will be over at that point. But the Haymarket Center is definitely a worthy cause. And I mean, then also stay tuned because I'll probably be doing another marathon in the future with another campaign. So, you know. Yeah, I don't see you stopping at any point. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna, you know. <laughs> yeah. So can we talk about your social media? Is You run an Instagram account called Scripted Writ, where you create beautiful quotes and the videos and some with videos, some without. How did that evolve? Yeah, so Scripted Wit is a... Instagram account that I started about three years ago. So let me back up and just talk about my grandmother, who I'm not going to cry again, but I might. She is one of, if not the most important person in my life. She's just always been like a constant force of kindness and wisdom throughout my entire life. So quotes is a shared passion that we both had. You know, I journal and and write down quotes that I find worthy and, and, and powerful, and she does the same. And so we've always had this like shared kindred spirit about that. And I translated that into work. So every day at work, I have a a quote of the day for inspiration, along with, you know, the daily communication, reservations, occupancy of the hotel, etc. Just to, you know, inspire. And sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're, you know, deep, sometimes they're light, sometimes they're sad, but they're always, you know, they're always supposed to pause and make you think and reflect. 
So I've been doing that. I worked for a very long time. And about four years ago, three, four years ago, yeah, I started putting it on my Instagram story, just a picture of the whiteboard, which I would do every day. And people immediately started responding to it and be like, oh, I love this. So I started continuing it and doing it every day. And then on my days off, I don't have a whiteboard at my house. So I would find creative ways to take a picture and write down the quote of the day and just, you know, something that I find powerful. And after about a year of doing that, I realized like my picture started getting clearer and more artistic and my handwriting got better. And I was about to say your hand, I'm looking at it right now. Your handwriting is gorgeous. Thank you. It's a lot easier to write when your hands aren't shaking really bad. But yeah, I was on a run actually. And I was trying to come up with a name for this because I wanted to create a page so other people could share it if they wanted to. And scripted wit just like popped into my head. And, you know, script is handwritten characters. Wit is keen intelligence. And I put the two together and scripted wit was born. And then I was furloughed in the pandemic. And that really kind of like furthered the scripted wit. Because my originally, I'm OCD. So originally when I posted scripted wit, I had to take the photo that day. Like that was like my thing. Like it had to be taken that day and posted that day. And that was just what it was. And then when I was furloughed, I had all, like additional time. So I started pre-writing my quotes and going on photo hunts. And I would take like a bunch of quotes with me and go explore and find different pictures. And I would, I would see a background, a potential background, and I would try and find a quote for it. Or I would have a quote and I would try and find a background that fit it. So they all kind of like nod to each other. Like today, for instance, is... They lived, they laughed, they loved, and they left. And it was James Joyce said that. So there's an Irish hunger memorial in New York that I would run by. And James Joyce is Irish. And so I put the two together. And that's kind of what today's quote was. But all of them have, sometimes it's just a pretty picture. But I do try and kind of make a subtle nod to whatever is happening with the quote and the background as well. And it's now become my full passion. So I find myself always looking, finding, writing quotes. I have currently, I have about 100 pictures that I've not posted. And I'm actually, I got scripted with trademarked and I'm currently writing a book for it. That's amazing. I did not know about the book. That's awesome. Yeah. I just started it because I actually have about 25 entries. So it's on page on the left page, it's the picture. And on the right page, it's just a brief bio because these like I have a bunch of different quote books that people give me, which I love. So thank you. But when they do have a biography, it's just so much information. So I I think that I don't want to tell. I don't want, you'll have to read it. Okay. Yeah. Let's yeah, not yeah, give yeah. all the secrets yeah, away. Give you you're everything. basically yeah, yeah, just yeah. telling them everything. You'll, yeah. You'll have it. to, you'll have to buy it once it's published. So if you are a publisher, you feel free to hit me up on script or because I would love to talk. <laughs> well, I think kind of before we let you go, cause I know you've got a very busy afternoon kind of briefly, could you maybe tell us and our listeners Maybe some of the signs to look out for as far as, you know, alcoholism and kind of when and how someone should seek help, in your opinion. Absolutely. So like I said at the beginning, this disease is a slow burn. It just creeps up on you really sneakily and it tricks your mind. So, you know, at one point you're having a glass of one glass of wine with dinner and then all of a sudden you're excusing a shot of vodka on a lunch break, you know. So it it is very challenging to recognize the signs when you're in it. But one thing to look out for is as soon as you start hiding anything, you know, one of Cleo Wade's quotes that I love talks about justification and how if you are justifying something, you need to pause and look at that because something's murky here. And I found that to be the case with alcohol. Whenever I was justifying my drinking, like, hey, it's flag day or it's Tuesday, you know, 
that is something to like, hey, maybe I have an issue here. So definitely when you're hiding it or when you're justifying your drinking, that's something to look for. And then my goal for Living Recovered is to remove the stigma from it so people are less scared to talk about it because it should not be something that you're ashamed of. So my hope with this whole campaign is to be able to shed light on it, to talk about it. You're not alone. A lot of people struggle with this. And the next aspect is if you are able to identify that there might be something here, reach out to friends and family, go to a meeting and just listen, listen to other people that talk about it. Cause you'll realize that you're not alone. A lot of other people struggle with it and it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to look like mine. Like I, I had a, a woman recently reach out to me that she's a mother of two, has a great successful job and she would just drink every night and it was impacting her next morning and her life in a very negative aspect. And she, and she stopped. So you're by being pausing and being self-reflective, you're able to see these traits sneak up on you and just hopefully, you know, seek help, ask about it, talk about it, et cetera. Well, that's wonderful. Well, McCord, we can't thank you enough for coming on here today. Honestly, you've been such a delight, but we do have a tradition on this show and we do a question of the day, sort of like a palate cleanser, just sort of like to... We just talked about a lot of heavy stuff. And so we normally would probably have already asked you what your favorite quotes are, but we did that in another episode. So we'll save that for, you know, maybe coffee another day. (laughs) But question of the day for you is what is the craziest thing on your bucket list? Okay. So my craziest thing on the bucket list is I want to run the big six, the big six marathon. So I don't know if that's necessarily, so they are, thank you for asking. They are Chicago, (laughs) which I'm doing next month, New York, which I've already done, Boston, which is going to be challenging because you need to qualify for and the time to qualify for Boston is extremely fast, which I'm not there. And then London, Berlin, and Tokyo. Oh, wow. Wow. That, I mean, I don't think that's that crazy, though, because I, I know you're going to do it. So that and then publish a book. There we go. So those All right. Two. We were yeah. already on well, your I, way. I'm working on it. So I'm, I'm already, you know, almost halfway there for the one and also the other one, too. So there we go. Woo-hoo, oh, but awesome. I do want to tell you my favorite quote, though. Just because it's from my grandmother. And it's actually (laughs) tattooed right here on my arm. It is, in life, just as in music, the rest are equally important as the notes. Play them. And my grandmother said that to me about a week after I got sober. So it obviously was very powerful and stuck with me. And I now have it tattooed on my arm. Yeah, that's amazing. I really like that. Yeah, she's the best. (laughs) Clearly a wonderful lady. And you are a wonderful person. Likewise. I just love you so much. And I'm so glad that you agreed to come on here because I think we both have have a very, you know, similar, all three of us have a similar basically goal to get people to, to be open and understand and process and overcome. So we can't thank you enough for coming on and we hope you have. I mean, thank you both for like starting this platform and allowing me to come on here and talk about it. I mean, it's powerful what you're both doing. And so just thank you for doing it and continue to. And I'm glad I could be a small part of it in season two. Thank you so much. We like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your afternoon. And we will be in touch and waiting for that book. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Well, have a good afternoon. All right. All right. Bye. 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 So what'd you think? Well, I always excited to talk to McCord. So I love that. But what I thought the best part about all of it is that I've been watching his journey kind of throughout the process, but to hear 
and this is something we didn't, we didn't get to in the interview, but, you know, he actually missed my wedding because his parents had put him in rehab or his family had done the intervention. And, and he just sent me a message that was something like, I'm not going to make it. I'm so sorry. But he told me later and was like, I was just too embarrassed. I just couldn't even say that. And so to take it from that person who is like too embarrassed to admit that to now that's all he wants everybody to know is like such a sign to me of like, that is somebody who is overcome and the definition of trauma recovery. Immense growth. Yeah. Just so much in the way, you know, we kind of mentioned in there that that he funnels this intensity that he has into so many different things. And I think, you know, that that's kind of a part of people with the, that kind of personality, like that, that more susceptible to becoming addicted to things because life is just so overwhelming. Right. It's obviously now his superpower. He's using that intensity to create change and to, you know, run marathons and, you know, help run this business he works for and, you know, write a book. And I mean, he's just, he's very And inspiring. has an Instagram account. And yeah. Yeah, just like, He's constantly on the go. It was really hard. It was actually really hard to get him for this interview because I know. he's we so like, busy. We scheduled like a million times because we all have crazy <laughs> schedules, but his is the craziest, I think. Right. I found him to be so very authentic, genuine, and just so open. That was refreshing. And when he did get emotional about talking about if it, you know, if we only get one person to change, I've done my job. And what he's doing, it's so good for himself for his own, you know, continued growth, but his approach is definitely going to help people and is helping people. Yeah. And I, I really, it took me everything not to kind of choke up and start crying at the same time, because not only for him and how much I love him, but also that I feel that way about this, you know, if we can right. just like help one person, then we've, we've done something. So, you know, Laura, I think everybody is at that point now because, you know, because of COVID and monkeypox and everything, it's just like now we're, now we're all, we got to talk about the things that are traumatic because we've all gone through such collective trauma. And then individually, everybody's going through something like you said on the podcast, everybody's going through something. And then as you mentioned, the kind of the breaking that generational trauma, you know, that we've seen now we're not talking about anything gets us. You know, that that is a continued issue, that the more that we are open about things, the more that people will start to seek help, that they feel less alone. And I think that COVID as a whole, and I, I say it all the time, I'm sorry, I'm a broken record, but that the psychological impacts of COVID, the isolation people went through, you know, I think that it really put in a very like a microscope on what everybody was kind of going through. And so they had to face it or bury it down. And I think that with this and what he's doing is saying, if you can do it, if you can bring yourself to do it, like get your message out there and then that can, it'll, it'll be a domino effect. It'll help others. So right. And Let's I also found it. it interesting about him talking about that he's so upfront when he's dating guys. Like he's, you know, this is just a part of who he is. And if it's a problem for you, you're probably not, he's probably not going to be with that person. <laughs> yeah, it's not so, so great. It's yeah, not <laughs> exactly. But to be so forthcoming about his whole journey with it, I just, when he was talking about his experience in the beginning, in the beginning when it was really bad. I mean, drinking, just to get through the day. And what are those things called? Where you, the shake? Oh, the delirium tremors. Yes. 
when he described that to me, you know, not too long ago, it's like he was trying to, I think, what was the analogy? It was like in Black Swan where Natalie Portman, I don't know if you remember the scene, but the pictures start talking to her. Yes. He was saying that that like literally he like woke up and like the wall was talking to him. And like, I mean, that's how crazy it is. Like you don't even think about that when like somebody's that addicted to alcohol that you literally withdraw within hours of not having it. And so he would wake up in the middle of the night and have those. And that's terrifying. And it was definitely one of the things that kind of jolted him and got him to that place of helping. But, you know, it. I think it also shows as much as I adore his family, I know his siblings well. And I think that as much as it, everybody else's good intentions are to to get you help, it really kind of shows that like you have it has to come from within. You know, you have to want to make that change. Oh yeah, that's with anything. Like you can lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink. If they're not thirsty, they're not going to. You know, <laughs> if they want to be stubborn, then they're going to be stubborn. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But what a great man, and what a great message. And I don't even really know him, but I'm like, I'm proud of him. I'm proud of yeah, his I journey. Yeah, I know. I mean, I do know him, but I just feel like it. I hope everybody feels that way because he is just such a good guy. And I hope everybody goes and checks out our show notes and the the different the different causes that he was supporting. You know, the Penn North Recovery Center in, in Baltimore, Partnership to End Addiction, and the Haymarket Center. Because I think once this comes out, he may have already run the marathon. So we'll update everybody on that. But just a, it's such a beautiful story of like taking, like you said, it's almost like he's using his powers for good, not evil anymore. And that's not only just a new day or, or the light at the end of the tunnel. It's like he's literally because of what he went through, he is proud of it. And he wears it as a badge of honor and he's using it for good. Oh, yeah. And I'm just just so happy for him. McCord, you're killing it. You're nailing it. Doing it. We love you. Well, I guess we should go ahead and ask ourselves the question of the day. Oh, yes. yes. Have you even thought about it? Well, yes, I have. I'm going to ask you first, though. What's the craziest thing on your bucket list? I don't think you're going to be surprised by this, but it's to go to space. You want to go to space? You did not know that. Well, I talked about how obsessed I am. You with told me that, but I didn't. You really want to go? Like, really, actually, want to go? Like, if it becomes like, I don't want to be this that person that's like on the first like three yeah. trips to the moon or whatever. That's a civilian that has no. If it becomes normal. Yeah, yeah, and more nor- cheaper, <laughs> more normalized. Yeah. Like for sure, I've even told. People that, you know, I want some of my ashes sent to space if I don't get to it. Oh, my goodness. Before I die. Like, that's wow. how obsessed I am with space. That's really cool. Uh, yeah. But it's on the bucket list. Let's it's make it on happen, there. world. It's, and it's crazy. So <laughs> I want to do a little bit less, though. <laughs> what is your craziest? Just to jump out of an airplane. I'm so oh. scared of it. I, I wanted to, like, overcome my fear of it. But I, I really do want to jump out of an airplane on Earth. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you don't. It would be a bad idea to jump out of an airplane off of Earth because you would just fly into space. But I think that you would love it. So I did it, but I did it tandem. You went skydiving? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. What is it like? Oh, my gosh. It was a million times better than I could have ever thought it would be because I thought it was going to be this like constant roller coaster feeling, you know, like that your stomach yeah. dropping. No, you feel like you are literally floating. Like you don't feel like anything in your stomach. Like you're just 
you know, it, it feels like the earth is coming closer to you, but you don't feel sick or anything. You just feel like you're flying. It's amazing. Ugh. But I will tell you, if I had not been strapped to somebody that literally forced me out of the plane, I'm not sure if I would, have, would have done jumped. it that first yeah. time. But now that I've done it the first time, I would love to do it a second time on my own. I mean, it's it's really cool. I think that would be something fabulous to do. And did you do it in Charleston? Yeah, I did. I did it with over looking over the beautiful sights of Georgetown. I kind of wish <laughs> maybe next time will be something like in Australia where I see something pretty. <laughs> That shows you how incredible it is. I did it like. Oh, there's Moon Hall. <laughs> yeah, I was like definitely just looking at a lot of land. It right. was very, you know, not that scenic, but it was the experience in and of itself was was amazing. I was kind of annoyed when they pulled the, you know, pulled the chute and then we're just like sitting there floating, you know, down the rest of the way. I was like, we could have fell for some, for longer. A little longer. That would have been pretty cool. <laughs> Well, I hope that you do that at some point. I'll do it with you. Let's oh go. Next page <laughs> drop. Next page. <laughs> Let's literally have a banner made Can you and imagine, we just have like, video. <laughs> Can you imagine our for season two? We, next page, <laughs> episode one dropping today. We're just dropping out of an airplane. <laughs> it's not out of the realm of possibility it's not, is all I'm it's saying. It's not. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been such a lovely Sunday morning. And uh, McCord, again, thank you so much for being you and for helping so many people. And Laura, thank you for bringing him to the podcast. He really inspired, personally, he inspired me today. And so I'm sure he inspired a lot of others. Yes. Well, you are quite welcome. And I'm also extremely happy that McCord came on and love him to pieces. And I hope that if just one person listens to this, we also hope that we can we can help you out. So it was lovely to see you. And as always, I can't wait to see you again next time. Bye. Bye.